Ra hum ra taruna runa runa run tahora kumba kumba nun tahora hara lamba nun da lamba tara munda run da munda ramda runda ramda munda lamba munda tom. To Isengard, the Isengard, be ringed and barred with doors of stone. The Isengard, be strong and hard and cold as stone and bare as bone. We go, we go, we go to war to hew the stone and break the door. For bowl and bow are burning now, the furnace roars, we go to war. To land of gloom, with tramp of doom, with roll of drum, we come, we come. To Isengard, with doom, we come, with doom, we come, with doom, we come. Welcome to Lord of the Rings Radio, the one podcast to rule them all. The home of Lord of the Rings Radio is LOTRradio.com. This is episode 6, and it is October 2005. Here's what we have in store for episode 6 of Lord of the Rings Radio. Uh, To start with, I'm going to do an in-depth review of Fellowship of the Ring, the movie. We're going to talk about the good things and the bad things. Uh, After that, I'm going to do a discussion, since it is Halloween. Uh, We're going to talk about the scary and spooky parts of Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's other works. Uh, For a character discussion this month, we're going to do Saruman. And to finish up, we've got a uh, listener contribution uh, by uh, Lembus Bread, as his screen name. He sent in a poetry reading of Tolkien, so we'll finish up with that. Okay, but before we get started, I just want to remind you to visit the website, lotrradio.com. We've got a forum there for discussion about the episodes. Also, there's usually a poll-up that kind of helps me decide what to do for upcoming episodes. And uh, in the forums, too, you can kind of influence what's going to happen in future episodes. So if you're interested in kind of uh, getting your input, that's the best way to do it. You can also email me, though. My email address is aaronawolf at gmail.com. That's A-A-R-O-N-A-W-O-L-F-E at gmail.com. So uh, be sure to check out the website, and uh, if you have any questions, comments, post them there, or go ahead and email me. Okay, so we're going to start by reviewing Fellowship of the Ring, the movie. Uh, now how I'm going to do this, I think I'm just going to go through the movie chronologically and talk about events and places and uh, how they interpreted things. And then uh, after that I'm going to go through, talk about individual characters and then kind of sum things up at the end. Okay, so Fellowship of the Ring starts with uh, a prologue, which I understand was kind of a difficulty for Peter Jackson, whether or not to have this prologue at the beginning of the movie, as it ends up being, or to put it in uh, the Council of Elrond, which is how it appears in the books. I think they made the right decision. I think you needed to have this explanation of the forging of the ring and uh, the Battle of the Last Alliance and the finding of the ring. I think it was important that that all happened at the beginning, just so uh, you know, viewers who weren't familiar with the story had an idea of, of what was going on and didn't have all these questions that didn't get answered until halfway through the movie. And also, I think it would split up the movie quite a bit to have this, you know, ten-minute explanation right in the middle of the movie. So, I think it was a good spot for it. Now, the the prologue itself, I was very impressed with, I think. A lot of the things visually were really cool to see. The Battle of the Last Alliance was, was awesome to see the huge host of Mordor, you know, and their charge into the elves, and that was pretty impressive. And uh, Sauron... You know, they maybe went a little overboard making him so gigantic, but, you know, Tolkien didn't really explain how, what kind of form Sauron took at the time of the Battle of the Last Alliance. At least I don't remember him saying it. He might have, might have said something, but, um, 
but even so, you know, he Sauron looks pretty cool. He looks pretty badass. So, and besides that, I think the prologue does what it needed to do. It gave a good foundation of knowledge that you need to, you know, have some kind of grasp on the story that they're going to try and tell. So after the prologue, we move into the Shire and we're introduced to the main characters in the movies. Uh, to start with, I guess we'll talk about the Shire and how they portrayed that. I think. Uh, again, visually, they, they did a very good job. I think the Shire looked how uh, I pictured it would look. I think the Hobbit holes and Bag End and Hobbiton, you know, looked looked perfect. Bag End in particular really impressed me. I think it looked, you know, really close to Tolkien's description, and just seeing it made me want to, you know, live in a house like that. I think uh, someday when when I when we buy a different house, I'm gonna make a room that looks like a room in Bag End. I think that'd be really cool. Um, some of my favorite scenes in Fellowship of the Ring are right at the beginning. The scenes with Gandalf and Bilbo together, I think, are, are really good. I th- when uh, Gandalf convinces Bilbo to to leave the ring behind, that whole scene there is is really well done. Uh, Ian McKellen and and Ian Holm both do great jobs. Uh, throughout the movie, and in particular in that scene, uh, another thing that I thought was really cool when um, Bilbo drops the ring and then Gandalf bends over and touches it, and you, you see the eye of Sauron for a second. That was especially in the theater. That was cool, and uh, you know the whole audience jumped when that happened, and that that was pretty neat. And the, you know that was one of the little touches, of course, that's not in the book, and you know it's not really against anything that happens in the book. It's one of the neat things that they added. Um, so, you know, I'm not against everything that they add. I think there's quite a few little little touches that they add that added a lot to the movies. Okay, so then we've been introduced to all the hobbits. You know, they've kind of given us an overview of what each hobbit is about. Merry and Pippin are the mischievous one and ones, and Sam is the loyal gardener. So Frodo and Sam set out together and, of course, happen to run into Merry and Pippin, which is a departure from the books. But uh, it's one of those things that... You know, they can't follow the book exactly, and that's something I understand right here. I mean, I don't... In the beginning of the movie, there's not really much in the way of changes that I have a problem with. Um, you know, they they got the four hobbits together, which was the main thing, and, and then, of course, they run into the uh, Nazgul. And this is something I'm probably going to say about 30 more times in this episode, but again, visually, I think they they got it right with the Nazgul. They made them sufficiently scary and, you know, these hooded, cloaked guys that uh, were basically the unknown, I guess, is what what these Nazgul represent to the hobbits at this point. They they don't know what these things are, but they're they're scared of them, and they they very well should be. And after their, their first encounter with the Black Rider, the Nazgul, they're basically everything that happens in the book from that point to Bree is glossed over. They did throw in a little uh, uh, deal with the uh, Buckleberry Fairy, which which I thought was neat. It's, you know, again, didn't really happen in the book that way, but uh, it worked in the movie. So the entire old forest is cut out, and of course Tom Bombadil was cut out, which I never expected to be there, and I can perfectly understand why Tom Bombadil was not in the movies. Um, there are some people who are really upset about that, I guess. And you know, yeah, I would have liked to see it, but I can certainly understand. You know, even in the books, Tom Bombadil is a 
a big oddity and he just wouldn't fit in, in this kind of movie too many questions and it's just too much to try to explain and it would just confuse people um, so I can understand that being cut out and the Barrow Downs being cut out I mean it, great parts of the book and it adds great detail to this, this story that Tolkien's telling but you know there's just not room for everything and and of course if you have to cut something those are the things I would cut too so I can't really complain about that so then we have the hobbits arriving at Bree and Bree is one of the few places that I, I didn't see the same way as Peter Jackson did I think Jackson tried to make it seem very unfriendly and intimidating and it may have been uh, that way to the hobbits but I think you know, the prancing pony to them seemed uh, fairly homely and inviting I just think Jackson tried to make it look a little more sinister than it was in the books, and, you know, maybe to a good cause, but uh, it's just not the way I saw it. As to the events that take place in The Prancing Pony, they again depart a little bit from the book there. We don't have Frodo up on the table dancing and singing and, you know, falling off and shoving his hand in the pocket and the ring sliding on. We've got Frodo running to stop Pippin still, and ring flying in the air and falling on his finger which maybe is less believable um i didn't have a big problem with it i guess i would have rather seen the version of events from the books but uh all in all i can't complain a whole lot about that either uh we are introduced to strider which i think was very well done um again visually they got it just right they had him you know sitting in the corner he looked dark and sinister which is how he was supposed to look and um so I think the introduction to, to Strider is very good, and I think the uh, the Nazgul attack uh, in the end was very good also. Um, the whole deal with you know, making the audience think that the hobbits were really getting killed and having Sam you know, come awake right then was was a nice touch. It was I don't think it was over the top. It was maybe a little more than I would have put in, but uh, I liked it. Well, the next major event then in the books, of course, is Weathertop and... Uh, they stray a little bit uh, in the movie. We've got Strider, of course, kicking ass this time instead of uh, you know just kind of scaring them away in the books with the with the fire. He basically kicks the crap out of all the Nazgul, which I can understand. You know they they want it to be an action movie and they need some more excitement there, so they they put that stuff in. But they have the main the main thing of uh, Frodo being wounded and, and putting the ring on. Uh, one thing that I really liked was how they portrayed the Nazgul when, when the ring was on. I think that that was a really neat way to do it. It really added, uh, you know, a little more fear to, to what the Nazgul were. It gave you an idea of uh, just what these these creatures were, and it made them look really creepy. So I think they did a very good job there. So after the attack at Weathertop, Strider and the Hobbits continue their march towards Rivendell. One thing that I, I did like that they stuck in there were the stone trolls from The Hobbit. Uh, but then instead of sending Glorfindel to save save them, they send Arwen, which I guess is okay. I mean, that Glorfindel, you know, just another character you have to explain that really isn't going to play a part in the rest of the movies. So you want to give Arwen more screen time anyway, so stick her in there. So I didn't have a problem with that. In fact, I think the whole chase uh, was very well done, you know, with the... A second group of Nazgul just barely missing her before she gets to the river, and uh, of course, instead of having Elrond send the the torrent of water, we've got Arwen 
seemingly, uh, some in it herself, which, you know, for the movie's sake, I guess, was good. It was kind of neat to have her standing there, you know, facing the, the Witch King and the rest of the Nazgul. Um, it gave her character more prominence, which I guess is important. So then the ring finally makes it to Rivendell, and again, there's another location that I think they did a great job uh, visually. Uh, Rivendell, well, I guess Rivendell didn't really look exactly how I pictured it. I think it's their version of it is a great version, and I can't complain about it at all. Um, we meet a bunch of new characters then here, you know, we've got Elrond and then the rest of the Fellowship, and... Um, the whole Council of Elrond, I think, was very very well done. Um, it was one of my favorite scenes from the movie, uh, with the whole discussion and, uh, of course, then the arguments starting. And behind all that, you hear the the chanting of uh, the Black Speech of Mordor, uh, and then, of course, it's all stopped and, and Frodo you know, offers himself up, and uh, and they go from there. So I think uh, you know the Council of Elrond must have been a very hard uh, scene to try and you know, come up with something that you know, you, that was a huge part of the book, I mean, I, I don't know how many pages it was, but it was a huge part of the book and a lot of information had to be portrayed, and I think in the movie they they got the main points across, and they did it, they did it very well now after they leave Rivendell, I was really open to see the scene with the uh, on the hilltop with the the wargs attacking the fellowship. Uh, I was surprised not to see it. I thought, well, gee, there's a opportunity for some action. I thought for sure they'd stick something in there, but they didn't. And you know, again, I can understand. There's only so much time, and you can't shoot everything. Um, then we get to Caradras uh, and Moria, and I, the whole uh, you know ascent of Caradras and the, the Redhorn Gate and everything was course shrunk to a very small section and they get covered with an avalanche of snow and it serves the purpose for the movie it could have been a little more detailed but um, I can understand why they did it the way they did and I, I don't want to seem like I'm complaining about these things I'm not you know I I think as far as the movie goes that's a perfect way to do it um, it was kind of reversed of course it, it was uh, Gandalf, who wanted to go to Moria in the books and, and in the movies, they kind of reverse that, and uh, and Gandalf does not want to go to Moria. Yeah, he kind of had a foreboding about it, uh, whereas in the books, Aragorn does. Um, but anyway, so they head to Moria. Uh, entering Moria, I think, is a great part of the book with the uh, the lurker, the watcher in the water. I, I think that's awesome. I, to, to see that creature is, is really neat. Um, again, they did a great job. I mean, all the costumes, all the creatures in all the movies are just, just really good. Um, I can't think of one creature that, that that just didn't seem to fit. I think they got them all right. You know, they maybe exaggerate things a little bit. Um, I don't believe in the books they ever describe seeing anything more than tentacles, whereas in the movie we see this big beast with this huge mouth and everything, but, uh, you know, it works in the movie, so uh, I don't have a problem with it. So the Fellowship then uh, enters into Moria, which is another location that I think visually they got just perfectly. Uh, everything in Moria looks just right. Well, I shouldn't say everything, The the deal after, uh, you know, when they're fleeing from the Balrog, going down those stairs, that kind of looks like one of those, uh, 
optical illusion drawings with all the stairs going different directions and stuff. I I don't know how much I like that, but again, it's just a tiny little complaint about something that they got 99% right. Um, the battle, of course, in Moria is excellent, uh, great action you know, with the cave troll and everything else. The Balrog looks amazing, you know. Um, you don't really get a great idea of the form, you know, Tolkien kind of leaves it uh, up to our imagination to decide. Um, you do get an idea of a a flame and a shadow and wings and you know they portrayed that perfectly uh, and of course Gandalf's stand at the, the bridge of Khazad-dûm is uh, great you know just you know one of my favorite parts from the books you know very favorite part probably if I had to pick one uh, is that part and it's one of my favorite parts from the movies they got it just right you know just perfect Gandalf standing there alone you know defying this darkness and and uh, of course then falling Lothlorien, then, of course, is the next major destination for the Fellowship. And this was a location that... I didn't see it exactly how they saw it, but... They did a good job with it. It was a little more surreal than I think I would have made Lothlorien. You know, Lothlorien itself. I think they got Galadriel just right. I think Kate Blanche does a good job. Uh, Celeborn, too, you know, not a big part, but... Uh, portrayed well. Um, the Mirror of Galadriel, you know, I would have rather had Sam there with, with Frodo, you know, to see the Shire, and, uh, you know, that scene's kind of cut a little bit, and you just see a little part of, of what's in the book, um, but they stuck it in. I thought maybe they would get cut out, and it didn't, so I'm, I'm glad it was there. You know, the whole deal with the psychedelic Galadriel, um, was, again, maybe a little exaggerated, but, yeah, I can understand why they're going to do it, and uh, it was a good scene. I really liked the scene with the Miracle Adriel. Another scene I really liked, and this was one that was added uh, in the extended version, was the scene with the gifts. Um, I thought that was really neat in the books, and I'm glad that they filmed it. I'm glad they did get it in in the extended version, at least. Then we have the Fellowship heading down the Great River to Amonhen, and one thing I would like to see that they didn't put in was uh, Legolas uh, shooting the mount out from under the the Nazgul. Uh, they didn't put it in and yeah, I know, they can't get everything in, of course. Um, but that would have been neat to see. But anyway, going on to Ammon Hen, this was part of the movie, part of the books, of course. Great part of the books, great part of the movies. Uh, they changed quite a bit, really. Uh, but I don't really have a problem with most of what they did. Um, the whole uh, scene with Boromir confronting Frodo and and Frodo getting away is great. Um, the scene with Aragorn and Frodo and Aragorn letting him go, I think, was really neat. And then, of course, the action with you know, Aragorn, Gimli, and, and Legolas all together is awesome. But the best part of it, of course, is, is Boromir's fight, which, you know, it's, it's redemption. It, it's, it's a great part of the book. You don't really get to see it. You just get to hear about it at the end. It, it's good to see it, you know. I would have gone a little further than than Peter Jackson did, uh, made that a little bit longer, give Boromir a little bit longer fight than he did, but, you know, it's great to see, uh, you know, Boromir trying to save the hobbits and, uh, you know, sacrificing himself. That was an awesome part of the movie. I think they, they did a really great job with it. Okay, I want to talk a little bit now about some of the main characters from the movie and how I thought they were portrayed. Um, we'll start with the hobbits. Um, Frodo, 
you know, Elijah Wood, they went out and got kind of a semi-big name for, for Frodo, and he's just not who I would have picked. Now, I don't really have a problem. He just didn't have the look that, that I thought Frodo should have. And I think he had the look that Peter Jackson wanted, and that's, you know, they picked him. Um, as far as his performance, he does a good job. I mean, other than his accent's not the greatest and his look's not what I liked but um, he does a good job I really can't complain about his acting I think he, he does very well as Frodo uh, Sam in Fellowship of the Ring is great you know in all the movies Sean Aston does a great job with Sam uh, in Fellowship of the Ring he doesn't have a huge part you know not a whole lot of speaking lines but he does well um, same with Mary and Pippin um, throughout all the movies I think they do very well Moving on to the rest of the Fellowship, um, Viggo Mortensen as Strider, one of my favorite performances throughout all three movies again, but uh, in Fellowship of the Ring, I think, uh, you know, as a Strider that they meet in Bray, he's, he's great, you know, he's a mysterious, dirty, uh, rough guy, um, but he does a great job of portraying what I think uh, Tolkien meant for Aragorn to be, uh, Ian McKellen. I think is the superstar of all of these movies. I mean, he he is Gandalf. They do a great job, you know, making Ian McKellen Gandalf, and he he just knows how to do it. He's a wonderful actor, and did a superb job. Um, some of my other favorites from Fellowship of the Ring is um, Sean Bean as as Boromir. Uh, Boromir is one of my favorite characters from the books, and Sean Bean does a great job uh, with him in in the movie too um, I love you know every every part of the movie with him and it is great I can't really say there's any performances I was disappointed in um, Legolas and Gimli um, their performances were fine I, I think they use Gimli as comic relief a little too much but um, you know that's not uh, that's not his fault um, Legolas is you know they use kind of the pretty boy uh, and I, I think he's kind of misportrayed a little bit um, but you know uh, Orlando Bloom does a good job uh, you know the action scenes with Legolas are cool uh, in Fellowship of the Ring he's fine they go a little overboard in uh, the Two Towers and Return of the King but in Fellowship of the Ring I think his action scenes he still does some pretty neat stuff but it, it's all cool um, the elves Elrond uh does a good job. They kind of make him a little more um, aloof and uh, somber than I think Elrond of the books is. They, uh, but I, I think Hugo Weaving makes a good Elrond. I think he looks looks the look, and I think he, you know, he he knows how to be Elrond. Galadriel, Kate Blanchett is as Galadriel is very good. Um, as far as the creatures and stuff go, I know I said it before, but uh, you know. They all look great. The orcs, the orcs are very good. Uh, uh, Soromon um, is very good. Christopher Lee does a great job as Soromon. You don't see him a whole lot, um, but the parts you do see, I think he's he's got the look. He's got the voice. I mean, he's he's another great actor. I think another outstanding one in in Fellowship of the Ring. All right. So overall, Fellowship of the Ring is probably my favorite of the three movies. I think they get, you know, everything just near perfect. Um, you know, visually, that's what Peter Jackson's so good at. And, 
you know, Tolkien gave him the material to work with. So, you know, visually they do an excellent job. Everything just looks so beautiful. They get it right. They make they make you see the depth that there is there in, in Middle Earth. Um, when you talk about the script, um, yeah, there's some things I don't like a whole lot, but uh, you know, 80% of the script is great. 10%s okay. 10% I really, really don't like. But you know, overall, great script character performances I think everyone does a very good job many do excellent jobs namely Ian McKellen, Sean Bean uh, Christopher Lee, uh, Viggo Mortensen all do outstanding jobs uh, so this is an excellent movie I'm very happy it was made sure I'd like to change a few things but hey beggars can't be choosers You know, we can't all make our own movies so you have to take someone else's vision of the books and that's what this is you know it it's not the book it's not lord of the rings the book it's lord of the rings the movie and it's peter jackson's interpretation and we could have got stuck with a much worse director than peter jackson so i think we all need to be grateful and uh, just enjoy these movies because they're all great and fellowship is my favorite all right on to our next segment uh it's october and and Halloween is here, so I thought I'd kind of talk about uh, some of the scary and spooky things in Lord of the Rings and in uh, the rest of Tolkien's work. There's a lot of it in there, really, when you think about it. You know, when you read Lord of the Rings, it's not exactly the same as reading a Stephen King novel, say, but uh, there's a lot of fears that I think Tolkien takes from, you know, just what's naturally inside of us and, and puts them in Middle Earth and, and gives them a place to live. So I think when you talk about you know scary ideas and scary scary things in Tolkien's work, you have to start with the Nazgul. I think uh, they're a perfect example of of how Tolkien uses these creatures to to scare us. One of the scariest parts in the books, I think, is when the hobbits are still in the Shire and they've got these black riders after them. You know, they're alone. They don't have Gandalf there to guide them. They don't know what these things are. Um, they've got these terrifying voices. You know, these screeches, and uh, you know they meet the elves in, in the woods, and you know the elves basically just uh, do nothing to help their fears. They make it worse by you know kind of uh, reinforcing that these things are something not to mess with. And you know the black riders are basically you know the unknown. It's uh, they don't know what they are. I mean, it's not like they're these gruesome, bloody you know murdering things. I mean, they are uh, murdering things, but uh, you know, they're not necessarily scary-looking. They're just black, uh, robed, and you, you don't know what's under there. Uh, so I think the idea of the unknown is is kind of what uh, drives the fear behind the, the ring race. Now, of course, Tolkien describes them, and they have uh, they just have this quality of of uh, creating fear, both with their voices and just by their presence. You know, so that kind of adds to it. And then, of course, we have the orcs, which uh, are everywhere in the Lord of the Rings. And, you know, these creatures are have a special, you know, scariness to them because when you learn that they're actually corrupted elves, these are creatures that were once good, you know, innocent creatures, and they were changed into these, these sick, deformed monsters now that, uh, you know, enjoy pain and suffering and killing and you know in fact that's what they were created by they were created by pain and suffering by breaking these things that were once good 
so that uh, you know that kind of adds a, a different kind of scariness to these these ugly gruesome orcs you know the fact that these were once good cre- good creatures and and they were changed by uh by evil and and pain and suffering into these uh gruesome things of course the balrog is another huge kind of evil creature that uh exudes fear um you know he this was something that is a creature as powerful as as Gandalf. He's on the same order of Gandalf, and um, just to know that this creature invoked fear in Gandalf makes this thing, uh, you know, feel f- fearful, of course, to to any mortal. And in the movies and in the books, you know, in the books, Tolkien uses, you know, he always does a great job of of describing things, but you know, some things he just leaves them just enough description for you to let your own imagination um, you know fill in the rest and he kind of does that with the Barog. I mean it's this this dark shadow and flame you know shadow and flame how does that go together um, you know with these wings and a whip and just this giant creature of course and you know and the fact that, that Gandalf fears this thing uh, of course increases the fear that uh, you know mere mortals would feel another very scary part in the books, I think, is uh, you know the the lair of Shelob, and you know it's it's so frightening because you know and, and of course in the movies very different from the books. In the books, it's you know darkness. It's Frodo and Sam alone, abandoned by Gollum. You know this horrible feeling of, of fear, but not knowing what's there. Again, it's the unknown. It's uh, you know this feeling of this malice there, but not seeing it fully and when they do finally see Shelob you know it's only it's only partially they see you know her eyes first and you know she backs away and then comes back and you know Shelob of course is a very frightening huge spider creature which you know most of us are afraid of little teeny spiders and uh, uh, Shelob is this huge uh, mountain of, of spider so again another uh, big ugly creature that uh, is very frightening I think uh, Tolkien does a very good job of you know, portraying the fear that comes from Mordor, too. I mean, uh, Frodo and Sam going into Mordor is basically uh, hell on earth, you know, this place where life can almost not exist, you know. There's uh, nothing there except darkness and dryness and heat and fire and rocks, you know. Um, very scary place to have to go, and of course it's filled with these, well, shallop and orcs and uh, worse things, Nazgul, uh, you know, volcano in the middle. Um, you know, very frightening place. Uh, not a place you'd want to go. And then we have Sauron, who, you know, we don't really get a picture of. We have the eye of Sauron, but you know, it, when I was reading the books, I always got this idea of you know the tallest tower of Barad-dûr and Sauron's in there. I never really got a picture of, um, you know, just what he looked like. And again, it's the unknown, you know. It's uh, this bodiless creature that that's full of malice and hatred, and he's seeking you out. Uh, you know, this eye is searching for you, but you don't know where he's coming from. Uh, another uh, another way that Tolkien uses, uses fear in his books. So the Lord of the Rings is full of all kinds of scary things, and there's all kinds of scary things in Tolkien's other works, from the Silmarillion to the Hobbit uh, to some other writings that that he did. Uh, he does a very good job. He knows 
how to keep his audience, uh, how to keep their intent attention. He's not, you know, overtly frightening. I mean, Lord of the Rings is not a real sus suspenseful book. There are parts of it that are very suspenseful. Uh, but Tolkien does a really neat job of creating creatures and creating situations and places that are, are very scary. For our character discussion today, we're going to talk about Sauron. Uh, last month we talked about Gandalf, so I thought that would be fitting. And this is uh, we had a poll on this, and you chose Sauron to be discussed this episode. Now, Sauron, of course, is a wizard, the uh, same as Gandalf. They're both Maya. They're both, uh, you know, gods, or a lesser order of gods. Uh, they both arrived at Middle-earth at the same time, and uh, when the wizards arrived, it was uh, accepted that Sauron was their chief. He was the most powerful of the wizards. Um, initially, Sauron went into the east. He actually went into the east with the, the two blue wizards. Uh, Sauron returned, and they did not. Sauron was made the uh, chief of the White Council. Uh, Elrond and Galadriel would have preferred Gandalf to, to be chief, but Sauron was chosen. Uh, it's also interesting to note that Sauron uh, studied heavily in the Rings of Power. He uh, wanted to know their history, and uh, also he wanted to know how they were made, uh, because, of course, I believe he wanted to make his own. And... Um, he did, in fact, make his own in, in The Lord of the Rings. I believe when uh, uh, Gandalf is captured by Sauron, he notices a ring on his finger. And While they never come out and say that this is a ring of power that perhaps Sauron made himself, uh, I kind of guess that's what Tolkien meant for us to get from that. Now, as the leader of the White Council, Sauron dissuaded uh, them from removing Sauron from Dol Guldur when they uh, discovered in 2851 that that's in fact where Sauron was. Uh, now he dissuaded them until he decided that he thought Sauron was getting too close to, to where the ring was lost. Uh, Sauron, of course, was searching for the ring himself and he wanted to keep uh, Sauron from finding it because he wanted it for himself. So he thought, uh, let's remove Sauron from Dol Guldur so he's not so close to the great uh, river, and and Sauron had always uh, argued that the One Ring had been lost forever. Uh, in the White Council, he uh, always argued that it would never be found; that it uh, rolled down the Anduin and, and is gone, and they didn't have to worry f about it anymore. And of course, it was later revealed that uh, he had aspirations uh, to find it himself, and uh, it's also. Interesting. I can't remember where I read this, and I didn't have time to find it before the episode here. But uh, someplace, it may have been in the appendices, it may have been in uh, 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 Unfinished Tales, I'm not sure. Uh, but after uh, the War of the Ring, uh, they found in Orthanc uh, the cask that uh, Isildur uh, hung from a chain on his neck that contained the ring. So... Uh, it was thought that uh, at some point Sauron actually found the body or, or the remains of Isildur and, and uh, the ring, of course, was gone. Uh, but he had this in Orthanc, so uh, just another sign that uh, Sauron was searching very strongly to find the ring for himself. So that's a little background on Sauron. Um, 
I want to talk a little bit about what Soroman perhaps represented in, in Tolkien's work. Now, Soroman, of course, came from the West. He was a Maya. He was, uh, you know, a god, a, a powerful being. And in the beginning, uh, he was good. I mean, he served the gods, and he, he came to Middle-earth to serve them in uh, you know, moving men to fight against Sauron. Uh, but he was corrupted, and it's, of course, a perfect story of uh, the corruption of power, and both uh, the power that Sauron had when he got to Middle-earth, he realized he had the power to govern men, to control men. Um, the elves were fading, and, and the ones that were left, perhaps he could dominate, and he did dominate as, as uh, chief of the White Council. Uh, so he saw that he had this power here in Middle Earth. He could be a god here in Middle Earth. He could be, you know, he could be what Sauron was. He, you know, in the beginning he probably didn't see himself as a Dark Lord as Sauron. He saw, you know, himself as, uh, you know, perhaps a benevolent ruler, but uh, all the same a ruler with absolute power. Um, so both the power he had already, uh, because he was so much more powerful than the other inhabitants of Middle Earth. Uh, that corrupted him, and then his lust for more power, you know, furthered it. He was he lusted for the ring. He wanted the ring of power because that would, that would of course seal the deal. That would make him, uh, you know, the ruler of Middle Earth for, for all time to come. So you know, the idea of Soromon is a is a very uh, it's a very good story about how how power corrupts. And there's also kind of the, the subplot of the Ents and uh, you know Soromon's development into a, into a power where he you know he corrupts men, he breeds orcs with men, and creates these these creatures, and uh, he creates these furnaces and machines and in Isengard that he uh, that he needs to feed with the, the forests of Isengard. You know, it, it, it I believe, gosh, was it Treebeard that said uh, he has a mind of of uh, gears and wheels, you know, kind of an idea of, uh, you know, an industrialization that uh, that was fighting against nature. Now, I know, you know, Tolkien was uh, very much opposed to a lot of industrialization he saw going on, you know, in England at the time that he was writing this stuff, and um, I, I think that's kind of a subplot that he made here, that um, a lot of what Sauron thought he was doing was progress you know he kind of when Sauron had Gandalf captured he kind of put it to Gandalf that way that they could order things and you know and create this 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 new order and this new progress that um, you know a lot of people take progress and, and they call things that uh, aren't really good progress and uh, you know progress for the sake of progress is never good and uh, what what Sauron was really doing was corrupting nature you know, he's corrupting these men. He was destroying forests to feed his own power and his own ambition. So Soromon really is the antithesis of Gandalf. You know, Gandalf had the opportunity to seize the power. He had the ring in his hand. He could have taken it and thrown down Soromon. He could have thrown down Sauron. Uh, but Gandalf refused it because he knew that power would corrupt him. So Soromon's really his opposite. Soromon was corrupted by his own power. He was corrupted corrupted by the lust for more power and that was his downfall you know he you know in the beginning it made him the rival of Sauron 
you know, he wanted to replace Sauron, and uh, towards the end it made him the subject of Sauron, and at the very end it, it defeated him, because uh, he failed in grasping the ultimate power of the ring, and he was left with uh, this made-up power that he had, which wasn't great enough to, to overcome. Okay, finally for today, we have another listener contribution. Uh, I want to thank uh, everyone who's contributed so far, and I want to encourage anyone else who wants to contribute uh, to go ahead and do so. Uh, it's great. I love to put these things in the episodes. I really appreciate it. Um, so if you want to contribute, you can go to the website, uh, lotrradio.com, or you can email me, uh, aaronawolf at gmail.com. That's a a r o n a w o l f e at gmail.com uh, this month's episode comes from uh, Lembusbread that's his screen name at uh, lotrradio.com he posts in the forum and he emailed this to me it is a reading of the poem of Gilgalad Gilgalad was an elven king of him the harpers sadly sing the last whose realm was fair and free between the mountains and the sea. His sword was long, his lance was keen, his shining helm afar was seen. The countless stars of heaven's field were mirrored in his silver shield. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelt, none can say, for into darkness fell his star, in Mordor, where the shadows are. Thank you, Lumbusbred, for sending that in. That is it for episode 6 of Lord of the Rings Radio. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, a few things before I close up. I started a project back this summer. I announced it in one of the earlier episodes, Tolkien Fanworks. It's TolkienFanworks.com. I kind of abandoned it there for a couple months. Um, I just want to let you know uh, it's back up. I want to give it some more attention. Uh, so if anyone wants to contribute, please go to TolkienFanworks.com. Uh, what it is, if you didn't hear about it before, it's a project to make an audio program from Tolkien fan fiction. Uh, I, I want to get it going. I, I apologize for leaving it dormant for so long. Uh, so anyone interested, go check it out, TolkienFanWorks.com. Uh, also, a shameless plug for myself, I'm going to be selling some, uh, some of my Lord of the Rings action figures, some extras that I have on eBay. Uh, so anybody interested in those, I'll post some links on the website, lotrradio.com, uh, collectors, whatever. Go ahead, check it out. Um, that's it for this month. Uh, should have episode 7 up uh, sometime in November. Uh, there's a poll up on the website already uh, for the character discussion for next month. Also, I see uh, in the forum, uh, another one of our contributors, Abersock, had posted an idea up for a future episode. I think I'll probably put it in in November. Uh, it's regarding uh, perfect gifts for Tolkien fans uh, for Christmas. So I thought that that's a good idea. So if you have any ideas for that, go to the website, lotrradio.com. Uh, other than that, that's it. I will see you next time. Thank you.